From CPR News, this is Colorado Matters. The first of three trials related to the death of Elijah McClain ends with one Aurora police officer convicted and another acquitted. And the next trial is about to begin. We'll take a closer look at police accountability and changes to Colorado law. What I will say is that this trial, the first of many, really does highlight the fact that Elijah McClain was innocent. Elijah McClain was not even under suspicion of committing any crime. Elijah McClain did not deserve to die. Then we talk with a Colorado woman in Gaza who's found refuge in a U.N. compound. I'm sleeping on a cushion on the floor with like 25 other people and there's tons of families. If we were near a hospital, I would love to run over to that hospital and just help. Your car used to take you places, but it can't anymore. If you donate it to CPR, it can take you places again down the road to new ideas, new discoveries, and through your donation, hundreds of thousands of other people will be able to come along for the ride because your donation funds the radio you rely on. Get started on the safe and simple car donation process at CPR.org slash support. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A jury convicted one Aurora police officer of third-degree assault and criminally negligent homicide in the death of Elijah McClain. That same jury found another officer not guilty for his role. The sentencing for Randy Rodema is scheduled for January, and the trial of a third officer charged in McClain's death begins today. Today, we're continuing the conversation about police accountability. First, reaction from a state representative who has advocated for justice for Elijah McClain. Leslie Herod represents Denver. She's also been a leading voice at the state capitol for changing how law enforcement is carried out in Colorado. Leslie, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. What's your reaction to the verdicts? You know, my reaction will definitely have to uh, mirror the reaction of Shanine McLean, Elijah McLean's mother. Um, she was uh, obviously upset. Uh, And I think a lot of where that comes from is the fact that you have a split verdict, but Mm -hmm. you also have the very harsh reality that nothing's going to bring back Elijah McClain. No verdict uh, will bring back her son that didn't deserve to be brutalized at the hands of law enforcement and paramedics. And so for me, it is a bittersweet situation in which we do have a guilty verdict, which never would have happened. Uh, had she not spoken out and advocated for her son at the steps of the Colorado State Capitol. But we also have a not guilty verdict uh, and um, more trials ahead of us. I want to review a little of what happened. So Elijah McClain was forcibly stopped while walking down the street. He had not committed any crime and he was heading home from a convenience store. Now, one officer charged in his death has been acquitted of all charges, that former Aurora police officer can remain on the force or he could work for another enforcement agency. The jury was made up of Adams County residents, and that's the judicial process. But how do you think this verdict will sit with the community? Again, we have two more trials ahead of us. Um, We have uh, the officer that uh, arguably um, committed the most egregious actions against Elijah McClain. Uh, and we also have the paramedics that injected him with the ketamine that ended up uh, killing him. And so I think that it'll be the totality of these verdicts that will uh, determine um, how Colorado responds. And if we do go back, you know, we remember that time on the Colorado State Capitol on the steps where we were uh, just starting the movement for Black Lives and we were in the wake of the murder of George Floyd. And as we were giving, you know, our comments and our statements to to a protest and rally, uh, Shanine McLean came up and took the megaphone and said, why weren't you here for my son? In that moment, she told the story of the murder of Elijah McLean. She told the story of of a, a mom who was advocating for people, anyone to believe that her son was innocent and didn't deserve this. And in that moment, she grabbed the attention of Colorado, but also international attention with his story. That is the reason we have this case 
in trial before us today, these multiple trials before mm. us today. Had she not done that, uh, and had we left it to Aurora to determine whether or not Elijah McClain deserved even a day uh, in in court, a, a moment of justice, it would not have happened. It would mm. not have happened. In fact, Aurora had already determined not to seek any further investigations or to pursue it any further. It was Shanine, his mother, that pushed day in and day out to finally have his, his story be told. Well, I do want to clarify something. Rosenblatt is not on the Aurora Force anymore, but he could be employed by another law enforcement agency in the future. So I just want to clarify that. But four years before Elijah McClain's death, some lawmakers at the state capitol tried to bar law enforcement from using chokeholds in most circumstances. Now, that measure did not pass, but a chokehold was used on Elijah McClain as well as other forceful restraints. You were able to pass a chokehold ban in 2020 as part of the police reform bill you authored. That bill passed amid the massive protest movement. Can you speak to the power of protest to bringing about changes in law? Absolutely. Um, Had Colorado not turned out and protested in 2020, we would not see the police accountability bills that we have today. And I I can say that very strongly. Uh, In fact, I I remember one of my colleagues saying uh, and recounting those moments in the 16 or 17 days that we were negotiating our police accountability bill that as she was considering her vote, she couldn't stop but hear the protests outside of the Capitol building, you know, no justice, no peace over and over and over again. Um, and the protests from, from Black Lives Matter, the words and the chants of the frustration of people, Black people particularly, but all of our allies as well saying, this is too much. We should not die at the hands of law enforcement or the system simply for existing. We deserve to live. And with those protests, um, we were able to really make a difference. And I, I've got to give Credit also to all the advocacy organizations and the other leaders who were not elected, who stood outside day in and day out, and sometimes inside the building to help us negotiate these bills, to help folks understand what was going on, to keep the public abreast of the negotiations, and to allow folks to understand where they can engage. Those protests really did uh, result in change in Colorado, and Colorado was one of the few places that was able to move the needle on things like chokeholds. Um, ending qualified immunity, uh, ensuring that we have pattern and practice investigations, which Aurora did get put under because of their routine brutality of Black people within the force. Now, we talked to your colleague in the State House, Senator Rhonda Fields. She represents Aurora, which of course is where McLean lived. We asked what else she wants to tackle in terms of reforms. Here's what she told us on the phone last night after the verdicts. What we haven't cracked the nut on is judgment, police judgment in reference to when do you use excessive force? I know they have the right to use excessive force, but is it appropriate for them to use it in a way that causes someone to lose their life? And so that's that's more work that we have to do in reference to, I would say, police judgment and accountability because it can't be just grab your gun, choke somebody, whatever it is, based on the trends that we're seeing, there needs to be um, better thought process, a thought process involved before they just escalate to excessive force or scenarios where we end up with a dead body. Now, how else do you think the rules for what officers can and cannot do need to change in terms of what some would argue is uh, carrying out those uh, incidents with more humane treatment in the community. Absolutely. And, and you know, we we passed uh, Senate Bill 217 in 2020, but we also passed additional bills um, in the subsequent years. One thing that we have struggled uh, with and continue to press is the requirement for de-escalation. If we look specifically at the Elijah McClain case, if just one person started and attempted to de-escalate, Elijah McClain could still be with us today. And there's so many other instances where de-escalation should have been the first move, not force. And so I agree and and I I know that we need to ensure that we have more de-escalation practices, not just trained, the officers trained in them, but utilized uh, in the community. 
we have seen time and time again when de-escalation works, we know it works, and that should be, you know, the number one uh, tool in their tool belt to ensure that folks are brought to justice, but also are alive to make it there. I think that's the key. Additionally, you know, in Colorado, we can't we can't ignore the fact that while we have a DA that, uh, excuse me, an attorney general that is willing to uh, pursue these cases and these investigations, uh, we do not have a truly independent independent investigation process in Colorado when law enforcement officers um, and departments out act outside of their badge. I think that's also extremely important. We've got a lot more work to do when it comes to police accountability. Uh, and I hope that Colorado will continue on with this work. Representative, thank you for joining us. Thanks for having me. Representative Leslie Harrod is from Denver. She has advocated for justice for Elijah McClain, including authoring a police reform bill in 2020. You may be wondering how the jury was split in this case. Again, Aurora police officer Randy Rodima was found guilty of criminally negligent homicide and third-degree assault. The second officer on trial, Jason Rosenblatt, was found not guilty. We asked CPR justice reporter Allison Sherry, who covered each day of the trial, about the split decision. Yeah, you know... There were a lot of people with hands on Elijah that night. I think if that's one thing we learned from the trial of watching hours and hours and hours of body cam, there were 10 officers on the scene. There were medics. So these two defendants, Rodima and Rosenblatt, had different roles. They were doing different things. Rodima was kneeling on him at one point. Uh, the body camera footage showed him jerking his arm back at one point. Here, You could hear popping sounds in his back. Um, you know, Rosenblatt stepped away for a while. Then Rodima stepped away for a while. So, you know, in short, everybody has a different role. And I think the jury was very carefully considering what these charges are, you know, assault, manslaughter, criminal negligent homicide, and trying to decide what roles and looking at all that body cam and all the notes that they have, which they could look at, you know, while they were deliberating to see if they met that threshold. At the center of this case, of course, is the humanity of Elijah McClain. We know he was stopped by police as he walked home from a gas station convenience store that he had committed no crime, and that he later died in custody. CPR's Rachel Estabrook reminds us about Elijah McClain, the young man who died. Unfortunately, most of us have only gotten to know him after he died, through stories from his mom, from other members of his family. When he was a massage therapist, a colleague from Massage Envy testified in the trial um, just last week. So, Elijah McLean's mom, Shanine, told CPR News about his career in massage a couple years ago, actually. When he turned 18, he got his GED. He didn't have to study for the GED. He just took the GED and passed it. As soon as he got his GED, he enrolled into the Denver School of Massage Therapy. And instead of him finishing in 12 months, he finished in seven. He decided on massage therapy because he was good with his hands. And he had been, when he was a child, we were going to church, and our bishop had actually prophesied about his hands, and she said he had healing hands. She said, look at his hands. They look like he could play the piano. And I was like, okay, that's true. So when he became 18, he got his GED. He went to Denver School of Massage Therapy. He had so many people that were repeat customers as massage therapists. And he didn't just work at Massage Envy. He worked at a chiropractic office. He worked in all kinds of areas. Um, in the in the job field, you know, he worked at a lot of uh, locations with massage therapy, but ultimately he wanted to cruise around the world and work as massage therapist on a cruise ship. He wanted to literally be able to take his vacation and have his, you know, have Sounds his fun great. and work at the same time. Mm -hmm. Keeping him out of the streets, keeping him out of neg negative situations, even though being homeless and being Poor is a negative situation. We still made it through it, you know. Um, we made through it together. And he still ended up turning 18 with all the positiveness from it, not the negative side. Mm -hmm. You know, he still ended up wanting to help people. He wanted to give back to people. He wanted to help them heal themselves, teach them how to help them heal themselves. You know, he I had an issue with sciatica, and he showed me how to help my own body, you know, things, I'm his mom, and I should have known that, but he knew it. So him helping me and helping other people was important to him. And that was Shanine McLean, mother of Elijah McLean. A reminder, he was 23 
When he died at the hands of police, he was the second oldest of six kids in his family. He had taught himself to play guitar and violin. He really loved the violin. Shanine remembers that he didn't like hip-hop. She kind of (laughs) smiled when she said that. He really liked classical music. He had an extraordinary sense of empathy. He used to play his violin for animals at the shelter to keep them company. CPR's Rachel Estabrook. When we come back, we'll talk with the National Police Accountability Project about how the split verdicts might impact future trials. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. One challenge for Casa Bonita's new chef, the sopapillas. The old recipe was incomplete, so Donna Rodriguez had to reverse engineer it with her staff. I bring all of them and I say, okay, I'm testing these recipes because I want to make sure it's the same one. So we try it and they're like, no, it's too chewy, no, it's too hard, no, it's not the flavor. And then we're like, yep, those are the ones. A culinary tour of Casa Bonita at denverite.com. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. Elijah McLean's mother, Shanine, watched the trial closely. After the split verdicts, she expressed anger. It's not a victory for me. This is not a victory for me at all. This is not a victory for the human race. This is not a victory for justice. These comments come from a Nine News interview outside the courthouse after the verdict was read Thursday night. Nine News actioning McLean how she maintains the strength to show up every day and keeping and speaking publicly about her son's death. Elijah told me not to worry because this isn't the final destination. This is just human judgment. And we all know that humans make mistakes. We all know that humans aren't perfect. So it helped that he told me not to worry because they have an eternal judgment that they have yet to see. And no matter how they try to clean up their slate, they still have my son's blood on their hands. Elijah McLean's death in 2019 added his name to a list that includes Eric Garner, Philando Castillo, and of course, George Floyd, black men who died after encounters with police. Fatal confrontations like these led to the founding of the National Police Accountability Project. The nonprofit, quote, promotes the accountability of law enforcement officers and their employers for violations of the Constitution and the laws of the United States. Its executive director, Lauren Bonds, joins us now. Lauren, welcome. Good morning. Thank you for having me. As we've said, one of the two officers on trial, Randy Rodima, was found guilty on charges of criminally negligent homicide and assault. The other, Jason Rosenblatt, was found not guilty on all charges. What stood out to you about the verdicts? I would say one of the most remarkable things about the verdict from, from my perspective is um, was the fact that it was a split verdict. You know, I unfortunately was, or fortunately or unfortunately, wasn't privy to all the evidence that was submitted to the jury, but I did have a general sense of the roles both of these defendants um, played in, in Elijah's murder. And uh, it's kind of hard to distinguish uh, their, their roles and their accountability here when both of them were responsible for, um, you know, using these positional asphyxia holds uh, that are known to lead to serious bodily harm and death. So um, I, I do think it is, um, you know, somewhat striking. And, and I think one of the things about jury trials is, you know, jur- juries are made up of humans. And so it could have come down to something as simple as, you know, one officer came across as more credible, one officer came across as more likable. And unfortunately, those types of things um, really do influence decisions a lot of the time. While the two officers were co-defendants, the jury had the option of rendering separate verdicts for each of them, which turned out to be the case. What are your thoughts on that in terms of making police accountable for what happened to Elijah McClain? I think, you know, that that's part of um, their protections as criminal defendants um, that that, you know, they do have the right to be um, judged separately by a jury and to have separate facts uh, about their involvement considered separately by a jury. Um, So I I think that's consistent with our criminal legal process. I do think it it could undermine police accountability going forward. I think more and more, particularly in the wake of, of, you know, 
the murder, murder of Elijah McClain, the murder of George Floyd, that we're seeing that police officers are rarely acting alone. There might be, you know, one person who's more involved, being more aggressive, uh, but there's responsibility to be assigned to everyone who's on the scene, every officer that doesn't intervene, every officer that assists the more aggressive um, police officer in, in harming somebody. And I do think that uh, it's, it's unfortunate when these officers are not seeing the same kind of consequences uh, because they have a legal responsibility, at least in the civil context, for sure, um, to, to stop harm from happening to civilians in these encounters. Let's talk a bit about your organization. What led to it being founded and who's a part of this project? Yeah, so the National Police Accountability Project was first founded actually in the wake of um, Rodney King's beating and the subsequent uprisings. And it was a group of civil rights attorneys across the country who were suing police officers, uh, suing police departments, who wanted to get together. You know, this is a very hard, very hard work to do, who wanted to get together and um, really join forces and share resources to be the most effective advocates for police violence that they could be or excuse me, police victims that they could be. Um, and so th this you know, started out with a group of about 20 attorneys. Uh, we've grown to nearly 600 attorneys across the country. And um, you know, we're, we're really open to anybody who advocates uh, for victims of police violence and, and people who are harmed in the carceral system. Now, we've been saying that increasingly in Colorado, police officers are being charged criminally and facing jury trials for their interactions. What do the numbers look like nationally? And would you say it's a, a lot of it stems from the aftermath of George Floyd's death in 2020? Yes, I would definitely say that there is a similar uptick nationally in terms of that prosecutors will be willing to uh, pursue charges um, and in those charges, you know, getting to the, the place where they go to trial and a jury gets to decide them. Ultimately, though, I would say that still doesn't uh, represent even a, you know, even a small fraction of the number of people who are killed or harmed by the police. There are, in the grand scheme of things, um, prosecutors and, um, you know, prosecutors are still declining to press charges in, in many, many situations, even when there's um, pretty clear uh, wrongdoing and liability. Now, two years after McLean's death, Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser announced his office had investigated the Aurora Police and Fire Departments for more than a year and found a pattern and practice of racially biased policing. In the weeks after, the city signed onto an agreement with the Attorney General called a consent decree. The city and state spelled out a series of specific re reforms to hiring and training practices and how familiar are you with consent decrees and is there data on how effective they are? So my familiarity with consent decrees uh, more so comes from federal consent decrees that the Department of Justice Civil Rights Division um, enters into with, with different police departments and jails. Um, I know that there are state processes and, and it's you know, fantastic that Colorado has um, the Colorado Attorney General has that authority uh, to to investigate and enter into these agreements. I would say that the I I don't want to say that they're not effective across the board. I don't think that there's great data um, on how effective consent decrees are. I think one thing that you could look to um, to determine how much they're changing things um, is the number of continued lawsuits that you're seeing um, against a particular police department in, in the wake of a consent decree or after a consent decree has been entered. Um, you know, sh the Chicago Police Department has been in a has been in a consent decree with the state of Illinois for years now, and you're still seeing, you know, millions of dollars being paid out in settlements to victims of, of the, that police department. Um, and I think, unfortunately, you know, they're definitely not a, um, a, a silver bullet uh, to, to deal with police, uh, police violence, but they are an effective tool in coordination with other steps um, to reel in problematic police departments. Earlier this summer, your organization's blog pointed out that in the three years since the death of George Floyd, the reckoning that many expected when it came to police actions and accountability hasn't really come to pass. Now, we heard one of our legislators, Leslie Herrett, talking about the use of de-escalation versus force. What will it take for real change to occur? 
That is the, that's the million dollar question. You know, I think um, 2020 was the situation where we had more elected officials than, than ever before, more courts than ever before, you know, willing to take a really hard look at our current police accountability systems and, and at least publicly saying that they're very interested in at the very least making reforms, if not completely reimagining those systems. I think, unfortunately, um, a lot happened uh, in 2021 and 2022 that really, and, and continuing today, that really blighted some of that progress. Um, and I think one thing in particular is that police unions got very organized. I think there's been a perception that crime has significantly increased. And those things have been um, really strong barriers uh, to, to there being any kind of legislative reforms, at least. And, you know, I think in terms of, of how, what, what will it take to actually, you know, make progress? I think it's going to take political courage on the part of elected officials um, to, to really, you know, dig in and, and say that, you know, they don't care if they don't get reelected, that people's lives are more important um, than, than their reelection. Um, and really pass meaningful uh, accountability measures. Um, so I think that's ultimately what it's going to take. I think it's going to take, you know, uh, people to be continued uh, movements and, and activists to continue to you know, be able to dedicate time and resources and energy to this as well. Now, we recently did an interview with a professor and black scholar from the Ohio State University, Pia, and we asked if the University of Colorado football coach Deion Sanders might act as a bridge to help navigate some of the racial unrest that has plagued the campus through the years. This is what he said. I find it not odd, but disappointing when folks always want to put the burden on the people who are the victims. And what I mean by that Black people, as a stigmatized group, always bear the burden of having to lead the charge. We shouldn't be stuck with the burden of having to lift the load. This is not just a problem for Blacks. It's a problem for America in general. Whites should be leading the charge. What are your thoughts about the idea of Blacks having to bear the burden, not Whites, what are your thoughts when it comes to police accountability? Yeah, I think it's an interesting conversation. You know, there, I think there's um, it, it's a fine line to walk where you don't want, you know, people who are most um, significantly impacted by police violence to not be part of the conversation, to not be able to um, be the ones kind of dictating and driving the direction of the types of reform and relief they need. But at the same time, you also, uh, I, I think Coach, Coach Sanders is right, you know, you don't, uh, there's, the onus shouldn't be on um, Black people and people of color uh, to deal with the harassment that comes from, um, you know, standing up and advocating for changes, uh, to, to have to deal with not only, you know, the impacts of police violence, but also, you know, the work of, um, you know, kind of pushing through reforms. Um, so I think it's a fine line to walk, but I don't think that, you know, I, I wouldn't say that uh, white people or, or, you know, kind of people with racial privilege should be leading that, uh, leading the charge for police reform or, um, you know, racial equity. Uh, but I would say that they should be taking on, you know, some of the work and the burden and that it shouldn't exclusively be placed on on black people or other people of color who are marginalized um, and impacted by police violence. Lauren, thank you. Thank you so much. Lauren Bonds is the executive director for the National Police Accountability Project, a nonprofit that seeks accountability of law enforcement officers involved in violations of the law and constitution. She joined us to discuss Thursday's verdict in the trial of two Aurora police officers charged in the death of Elijah McClain. Colorado's Attorney General Phil Weiser read a statement after the verdicts in front of the courthouse. As a reminder, enormous public pressure led the governor to direct Weiser to reopen the case. The Adams County District Attorney had essentially closed the case and had decided not to press charges. After Weiser stepped in, a grand jury brought charges against three officers and two paramedics who forcibly stopped Elijah McClain and injected him with a powerful sedative against his will. More than three years ago, the governor appointed our office as special prosecutors to investigate the death of Elijah McClain after a violent encounter with Aurora police and paramedics. 
from day one, we took this responsibility extremely seriously. Our investigation was thorough. It was guided by the facts and the law. The statewide grand jury found probable cause to charge the defendants in this case. We then proceeded, as was our solemn duty, to see it that the officers and paramedics who were charged with the death of Elijah McClain would be held accountable under our system of justice. Given the number of involved actors and the complexity of this case, we knew that this prosecution would be difficult. It was nonetheless important that this very significant case go before a jury so we could hear the evidence, review all the facts, and make a judgment. I am deeply proud of the team behind me, the hard work, the seriousness of purpose, and the manner in which they put everything they had into this prosecution. They presented the strongest case they could to lead to holding accountable actors who were involved in the death of Elijah McClain. Today, the jury returned a guilty verdict as to one of the defendants. I'm so grateful that the team's hard work and dedication resulted in this judgment. We have two more trials yet to prosecute, and I know the teams handling those cases will bring a similar commitment to their work. Today's verdict is about accountability. Everyone in Colorado, everyone in the United States, no matter who you are, is accountable under the law. Hopefully today's verdict can be a sign for healing for the Aurora community and for our state. I recognize that some people may not agree with this verdict. All of us, I would urge, must respect our jury system, which is a pillar of our democratic republic. The people who served on this jury are our neighbors. They're regular Coloradans who took time out of their lives, stepped away from their work so they could hear the evidence, deliberate, and deliver justice. I thank the members of the jury for their service. We are here today, as the prosecutors in this case said, because Elijah McClain mattered. He was only 23 years old. When he died, he had his whole life ahead of him. His mother, Shanine McClain, has relived that tragic night again and again over the last several years. I and those on our team are deeply inspired by her. Her commitment and devotion to her son and to justice. Shanine has been incredibly resilient. She's been determined not to let anyone forget Elijah McClain, how he lived and how he died. I thank Shanine for her strength, for her grace, for her commitment to justice, and for her resilience during this process. Elijah McClain's memory is living on as a blessing. One of the ways that we can honor the memory of Elijah McClain is continue to work on how we improve policing, how we build trust between law enforcement and community. There are many honorable police officers who fulfill their oaths to serve and protect the public every single day. Yet too many times, we've seen people die. We've seen people seriously injured because of their encounters with law enforcement, including times when officers escalate situations that don't call for the use of force. Together, we must do all we can to prevent these tragedies. Together, we can work to make policing safer, more effective, and more worthy of the public's trust. Only then will we truly have justice and public safety. Thank you. Colorado Attorney General Phil Weiser commenting outside of the courthouse after the first verdicts were announced in the death of Elijah McClain last night. We have continuing coverage on air and online at CPR.org. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Jenna McMurtry. As a news intern for CPR this summer, I covered health, education, and justice across Colorado. You also heard me on NPR a few times. 
CPR offers opportunities like these and more to current students and recent graduates to set up the next generation for success. Learn more about our internships and fellowships at CPR.org jobs. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. A pediatrician from Grand Junction remains stuck in Gaza. Dr. Barbara Zind arrived a week ago on a humanitarian mission to provide health care to Palestinian children. She had planned to leave the country last Thursday, but Israeli airstrikes after the attacks by Hamas militants closed the border crossing into Egypt. She spoke with CPR's Western Slope reporter, Stina Sieg, this week. How are you doing? I mean, do you, how safe do you feel right now? Yeah, well, so I've been, I've been staying at a small hotel with, um, with just two of us in the whole hotel. And it's been, I, I feel pretty, I have felt pretty safe there. But today we moved to the UN compound. And so I feel safer. It's, you know, hopefully the big mark of a UN on the building and it, it'll be safe from bombing. I'm sleeping on a cushion on the floor with, I mean, I haven't slept yet, but with like 25 other people and there's tons of families, a dog and a bird. And um, so it's, it's like a big sleepover, but it's, uh, yeah, but definitely safer. And you were actually there when the attack started. Right. So I arrived on Friday evening. I come pretty much every year other than COVID. And so one of the staff members of Palestinian Children's Relief Friend is a friend, and he and his daughter and I went walking, invited me to walk on the beach on Saturday morning, and it, we met at 6 a.m., and, and we're having a wonderful walk. And about 6.30, we started seeing these missiles coming from Gaza and other people that we saw walking along the beach and police along the beach. Nobody really knew what was going on. So initially, we really weren't sure, but the daughter said, you know, this is life in Gaza. You know, one minute you're having a, a pleasant walk on the beach and the next minute things just flip. And tell me about the medical mission that you're on right now. I mean, so you treat Palestinian children? Right. So I volunteer with Palestinian Children's Relief Fund and they do just a variety of things. They send surgical teams over to do surgery. They're doing a lot of training of local physicians. They've revamped a lot of pediatric units just, you know, to help hospitals. And then people sponsor children. And so people will donate monthly to help. These are children with chronic diseases. And maybe it's something really rare. Maybe it's diabetes. Maybe it's hemophilia. And so they get medications and, and treatment from the Ministry of Health or from the UN Refugee Works Association. But there's a lot of gaps. And so the PCRF funding helps fill in those gaps. So it gives people money to maybe buy extra insulin syringes to get them through the month or pay for rehabilitation or those special funds to pay for wheelchairs. They have a program for amputees. So they're just trying to fill in gaps that the that the system here doesn't cover. Has it been hard to not be out helping and also not be doing the original mission you came here to do? Yeah, yeah. I mean, especially I feel like I would love, we were near a hospital, I would love to run over to that hospital and just help with triage of children. I'm not a surgeon, but um, I can't right now, yeah. And so I, when I was talking to your husband, he was saying that, you guys have family in the area that you have a, a sister-in-law who's Palestinian? My sister-in-law is from the West Bank, and she gave me advice on what to do when you're under, you know, when there's bombing. What are some of the big um, tips she had for you? Well, she said, stay away from windows. And she said to um, also find a place in the room that was away from windows and ha was near a lot of corners because that's where the reinforcements of the walls are. And then she said, if there's a really loud bomb, then open your mouth so that you don't rupture your eardrum. Yeah, I saw you on uh, CNN and you seemed like you were dealing well with these really loud explosions happening behind you. Yeah, yeah. Thank you. I The staff at the hotel, there were only like five people. There were only two of us there they would just laugh at me because I would jump and startle with these noises and they would just, you know, think I was, you know, going over the top with them. So, so you think I'm calm. They think I'm just, you know, 
too sensitive to them, I guess. So what is your next step? So I know that there's World Health Organization, United Nations, and and I read an article that the, the U.S. is trying to push Israel to have a humanitarian corridor because people barely survive on a good day and they can't survive without getting food and medications and water and fuel. When it comes to you leaving, I think a lot of people hearing this might wonder, you know, where is the U.S. government? I'm wondering, have you connected with the U.S. State Department or reached out to Colorado's congressional delegation for help leaving? Senators Michael Bennett, John Hickenlooper, Representative Lauren Boebert, who represents your district. What are you hearing from them? Um, Yes. And I think we've asked our friends to and around the country and the person that I'm here has to. So and we have definitely we've made some contact with the embassy in Jerusalem. So we've been in a lot of contact. Um, a lot of them have told us just register with the State Department, which we, has been done. But yeah, we've had some helpful people and some that you know maybe didn't do so much. But I think the advantage of that really is to vie for humanitarian aid for the Gazans. And along with that comes assistance with me leaving the country. So you feel like even now, as you're trying to leave Gaza, it sounds like your safety, your return to Colorado is not your biggest priority. Well, I think they go hand in hand, right? There's no door open for me to leave. I'm I'm in a what they call Gaza, the open air prison. And there's only two ways to get in or out. And one is Erez crossing that goes into Israel and that's been bombed and that's closed. And then the other one is to get to Egypt. And those are the only two ways. Now that those are both closed, I guess for opening a humanitarian corridor gives me access to leave. So they're they're kind of one and the same, just letting goods in, aid in, and letting people out. Does securing that corridor out of Gaza seem possible right now? I tend to be an optimistic person. And up until last night, we had a plan and we were going to get out of Egypt until the on the border. And so I, I think what affected me most was last night when I lost Wi-Fi because I realized I didn't have a phone that was calling well and I couldn't get on internet so um, any mobile data. So I really felt isolated. And that was scary. It's like I can't I can't get on WhatsApp and hear what's going on and communicate with my family. So that was probably the scariest night until I could get Wi-Fi late morning today. And I'm sure people are going to hear this and they're going to say, oh, what can we do? How can we help? What can people do? How can they help your situation, but, you know, other people as well? Well, I think, you know, I think it does help to let our congressmen know that, you know, that not just that I'm here, I'm not the most important person, but just that, you know, people in Gaza need humanitarian aid. And like I said, when if that happens, that that's a gateway for me to, to get out. But um, I mean, it's it's good to be in the UN building because I feel like the UN doesn't want me to live here for months. <laughs> so um, they're going to have a vested interest in getting us out of here. Is there a moment from these last, you know, since the um, the bombing began, is there a moment that sticks out to you as being particularly hopeful or joyful or sweet? Oh, of course. Yes. Today, the five men who've been helping us at the hotel. They speak very little English. And um, the person that I'm with, the other PCRF volunteer, it's her birthday today. And so I can send you a video. I know you're radio, but of them bringing cake for us and singing happy birthday to her. And it's just so touching. Oh. Is there anything else you'd like listeners back in Colorado to know? Well, I guess just that, you know, you know, what Hamas did is an atrocity, and I'm not a politician, but but the atrocity is done on both sides, and it's so politically complicated, but I just hope that there's compassion and understanding of, of really of both sides. That's Grand Junction pediatrician Dr. Barbara Zind speaking with Western Slope reporter Stina Sieg on Wednesday afternoon. 
Dr. Zind has been traveling to Gaza from Colorado for more than a decade as a volunteer with the aid organization Palestine Children's Relief Fund. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. The carnation grows quite well in Colorado's plentiful sunshine and cool nights. When an irrigation ditch brought Platte River water into Denver in the 1920s, the city's budding floral industry blossomed. Greenhouses extended the growing season, and Colorado quickly gained a reputation for producing year-round blooms of brilliant color and lasting quality. The Carnation Gold Rush was on. In 1927, the flowers generated more money than gold. And by the 1960s, Colorado Carnation growers sent a bouquet to the White House every week. But the oil embargo of the 70s cooled the region's greenhouses, and an effort to curb cocaine pruned the industry further, as farmers in Colombia were encouraged to quit growing coca and start growing carnations and other flowers. Cheaper South American blooms now dominate the market. But here in Colorado, every year, the Wheat Ridge Carnation Festival celebrates the state's floral history. A Colorado postcard from CPR, with the support of National Jewish Health. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News and KRCC. I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. The U.S. Forest Service is in charge of millions of acres in Colorado's mountains, but their staff can hardly afford to live there anymore. That's the impetus for a first-in-the-nation housing project that will use Forest Service land to serve the wider community. CPR's Andrew Kenny reports. Evergreen forests streaked with golden aspen groves cling to the steep slopes around the town of Dillon. Those endless woods are the domain of U.S. Forest Service Supervisor Scott Fitzwilliams. I think Summit County is 86% national forest, so quite a bit of it. Pretty much everything you see is national forest. He's looking out over those pristine mountainsides from a much more mundane spot. Every, every Forest Service office needs a place to store, like you're seeing, you know, some lumber, some fence posts, some extra signage, some rebar. When something breaks, when there's uh, a sign that gets run over or torn down. This 11-acre collection of old sheds and wooden cabins tucked among the trees is home to not just the materials and the machines, but also some of the people who maintain the forest. With rent of about $1,200 and fantastic views, it's a decent deal for the 20 Forest Service workers who might nab a cabin or an RV site here every year. But the compound is showing its age. It is not the Taj Mahal. It is not the, you know, Regis. That's for sure. These, these are pretty primitive and, and, you know, the standard, we need to improve it. We're, we're asking a lot for folks to live in this kind of conditions at a 9,000 feet elevation in the middle of winter. So. And it's part of a bigger problem. Facing the choice of exorbitant rent or beat-up housing in Colorado's mountain towns, or sometimes exorbitant rent for beat-up housing, a lot of job candidates are starting to turn down the Forest Service. People are declining permanent job offers at about 56%. So more than half of the time we offer a job, people are saying, I can't. Um, Would love to, but I can't afford it. I need housing. Fitzwilliam says the Forest Service does not have the money to solve that problem. But they've got something else. Land, including this land. The Forest Service is about to sign a lease so a private developer can transform the hilltop property, rebuilding the fire engine bay and the office space and the storage, and adding an entire residential community. Forest Service land manager Anna Bankson. And then if we're looking down toward the west on the site, you will see the housing development. So, um... Multi-story buildings with one, two, and three-bedroom configurations mixed in with some green space and a community center and public transit and a rec path coming through. The project will tally nearly 200 affordable housing units. A handful will be set aside for Forest Service staff, and the rest will go to middle-income workers in Dillon, like teachers and firefighters. The project has millions of dollars of backing from the state and local governments. Summit County Commissioner Tamara Pogue. It really is an innovative project. It's the first in the nation. It'll be the first development in the nation that leases U.S. Forest Service land for affordable housing development. Congress decided in 2018 to let the Forest Service do this kind of project. But Dillon will be the first place it actually happens. The idea is to support the Forest Service, which is hugely important to rural and resort communities, while securing much-needed land for housing. Um, There has been a lot of interest in the U.S. Forest Service project from other communities. In fact, a few weeks ago, um, we hosted a 
delegation of congressional staff from Missouri, um, Montana, I mean, all over the place. The Forest Service is not getting into the business of turning campgrounds into condos. Instead, projects will be limited to sites the service has already set aside for stuff like its offices and supply yards. Fitzwilliams says there's only a few of those in White River National Forest. Yeah, if I, I think if we added up across the whole forest, it might be... Yeah, 40, 50 acres uh, that we would consider something like this over in the forest is 2.4 million. So obviously very small part of it. Now, some are already interested in expanding that scope. Commissioner Pogue suggested the Forest Service could look, for example, at land that's wooded but less than pristine. Maybe it's been hemmed in by roads and development. But she knows that could be a more contentious question. I will say that I think some of the toughest fights in Summit County are the ones where you have a need for affordable housing, but there's also a need for uh, open space, right? And so there's always a tension. There's always going to be a tension in communities like this one where folks really come to recreate. This first Forest Service housing project could break ground next summer. Plenty of others are waiting to see how it goes. In Dillon, I'm Andrew Kenny, CPR News. Thanks for joining us today and to the Colorado Matters team. Tyler Bender. Carl Bielek. Anthony Cotton. Pete Kramer. Andrea Dukakis. Rachel Estabrook. Michelle Fulcher. Matt Hers. Tom Hess. Michael Hughes. Chris Ketchum. Pedro Lumbraño. Shane Rumsey. Ryan Warner. And I'm Chandra Thomas-Whitfield. This is CPR News and KRCC.